Welcome to The Meaning of the Movie, our podcast about what matters most when it comes to the film. You're about to hear a spoiler-filled discussion about the themes, the characters, and why this film, or in our case today, TV show, is worth watching and thinking more deeply about. I'm Rob Sinnott, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harmon. Andrew, what's up, man? We are back, and we're finally talking about Stranger Things 4, Volume 2. I could not be more excited today. I always say that I'm excited every time that we jump on here. I'm like, oh, I'm super excited to talk about Arrival, and sometimes that's not true. Uh, but I am indeed super excited to talk about Volume 2 of Stranger Things today. And normally I'm like, okay, Andrew, we got to do this. Here we go. I'm always pushing you to do crazy things. But you're like, Rob, we got to talk about Stranger Things Season 2, and I was like, or Season 4. Volume two. And I was like, I can't because I am in France right now. There is like a 12 hour time difference. I do not have my microphone. So if I don't sound my deep, booming, normal, silky, awesome voice, uh, the reason why is because I'm sitting next to a sleeping bag on the floor in France. Um, But we still had to talk about this episode. It was like, it doesn't matter where in the world you are. This is the phenomenon. And I actually feel like the summer movie schedule has been like kind of so-so, like a little up, a little down. Right. It's been a little hit or miss. Yeah, a little hit and miss. Some good stuff. But for the most part, what I'll think about when I think about summer 2022 is Stranger Things. And so it's like, all right, let's talk about this. And we wanted to take some time. We did a volume one and we had massive requests like emails, people stopping me on the street in France, just all over the place. Like, are you going to do volume two? <laughs> so here we are. Bringing the wishes. We're doing volume two. Recording from two opposite sides of the globe. You're in France. Where are you in France right now? I'm in Nice, which is spelled like nice. Is it nice being in Nice? It's beautiful, dude. It's like French Riviera. If you've seen Entourage, like Cannes, like this is where they go. It's just like beautiful, beautiful. I love the south of France. And so that's where we are. My wife is fluent in French and I speak like two words in French. And uh, excellent, excellent. We're a great combo. Yeah. That's awesome. So you're there. I'm in L.A. We're on opposite sides of the globe. It's like noon for me. It's like the middle of the night for you. And we're going to talk about some Stranger Things. It's like one of us is in the upside down and one of us is not. You get to pick which is which. <laughs> That's true. I'm not sure. <laughs> okay, so let's just get right into it, Andrew. I want to know how you felt about Stranger Things Volume 2. It was, it was wonderful. You know, like when you're super hyped about something and you just hope that they're going to pay it off? Like... Going into Avengers Endgame, right? We were like, man, I hope this is, I hope this doesn't suck. This has been really good, but you've got to land the plane, right? And obviously this isn't the end of Stranger Things, right? So they still have a whole plane landing job to do next season. But this was such a great season with so much intrigue and so much cool storylines and characters that it's like, man, I hope this doesn't suck. And boy, did it deliver. I just, man, I loved it. I have watched the final episode or final movie, I guess you could say, episode, <laughs> episode, uh, what do they call it, the piggyback. I've watched it actually three times now, and it didn't feel like two and a half hours any of those times. It's just so good. Yeah, it landed the plane like Murray just flying over the icy <laughs> tundra of Russia where you're just like, oh, this could turn out so bad, and yet it's beautiful. And because it was, like, such a crazy ride, when they finally land the plane on you, it's, it's like euphoric. You're like, this is incredible. Right. I mean, it just, everything just really, really worked. And we talked about this a little bit in our Volume 1 episode of they have a ton of plot lines, they have a ton of characters, they're juggling so much story. You know, they've got a bunch of plates spinning. It would be so easy to drop at least one of those plates. And honestly... I don't think they did. I think some people argue that certain storylines might not have been as effective as others, but 
whew, I thought all those plates stayed up and it was kind of like an orchestra just all coming together. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. And um, I think we'll get more into that in this episode. I, I think what's incredible to me is like, I was thinking about this. If you would have told me after watching season one that, hey, there's going to be four seasons. And by the fourth season, they're doing two parts. And the last two episodes are like two hour movies each. I would have been like, ah, this was so beautiful and pure and simple in season one. I think by then it's just going to be blown up too many characters, too many plot lines kind of all over the place. And I think that's yeah. what could have happened here. And I think I'm mindful of it because, like I said, 2022 summer, I've seen so many movies where I just feel like, the directors are not really in control. The writers are not really in control. They're kind of trying to go for a mood or a vibe, but I'm like, ah, this did not work. This did not become what they wanted it to be. And I just right. felt like the Duffer brothers, and I think it's one of the big questions and what's so interesting is like, what would have happened if COVID never hit? If this would have kind of come out in its original timeline, like what yeah. would have happened? Because what feels like to me, they kind of stopped, they reset, but it was just like, these are people who have put so many thoughts into these characters, into these stories, and how this is going to all pay off. And it just felt like people who were like grandmasters in chess, and they knew what each totally. piece was, and they're like, okay, I'm going to move this piece and what it's going to affect over here. And with that many characters and that many storylines, um, and for it to work like that, I was just, and it was so fun. It was just like, this is what right. you want it to be. Well, and they've been interviewed. And one of the things they said is that, like, because of the shutdown, they were shut down for COVID for six months and they had already started working on on some of it. I don't know how much of it they would shot or if they would really shot any of it, but they were in the production process and they got shut down. And so they were able to take those six months and kind of relook at everything and adjust and, and take that time to really make sure that everything was working and everything was was paying off like even the so like the um eddie the eddie guitar solo that at the end that every, every, everyone loves which should not work that should be ridiculous and somehow is crazy epic right that was an idea that someone in the writer's room came up with of like they were like how do we distract the bats and he's like you know what if he's like a metalhead and so he does a guitar solo like oh that's great but he hadn't been a guitar player until that idea came up and so then they go back and drop those scenes into other episodes of where he's like talking to Chrissy about having a band and where he's showing off his guitar and like all these other m moments in order to lead up to that, where in a normal production schedule, they would have already shot three episodes at, th at that point, right? Before they were even like writing episode eight, they would have already shot three episodes and they wouldn't have been able to do that as cleanly. So it was kind of a huge blessing to be able to do what they did. Well, and it's so interesting, right, this show, because... There's such a time clock to it because of the characters' ages. You literally mm -hmm. have, you know, <laughs> it's like the Wonder Years. It's like, I mean, it's like Walt on Lost, where it's like eventually Walt just disappears because it's like, oh, he aged too much. And this is supposed to just be like, I mean, my kids have talked about it. When they started this show, these kids were like 12, and now they're all 20, but they're like freshmen in high school. Like, they're definitely, like, if there's one thing that's stretching Stranger Things the most, it's the ages of the actors versus the ages of the characters. Um, right. And that's always been the thing they're up against. But at the same time, that thing has been like, okay, we got to crank out another season. And it's such a valuable property for Netflix. And so it's like, okay, we need to do this. And what a gift it probably was where it was like, okay, we had this whole thing cracked. We knew where it was going to go. But okay, now we're going to stop or we're going to take a deep breath. And you, it just felt like creative juices were flowing in one of the like benefits of like, okay, we're not shooting. We just have to keep thinking of ideas. 
And sometimes that can go off the rails, you know, like where you're as a writer with a story, you're adding a bunch of stuff and it doesn't pay off. But this just felt like something that was just like really polished out smooth and really like compelling. Like I, I just felt like I was on such a journey with this show. For sure. I love how you compared it to chess. We both play chess. I'm not very good at it, but like that ability to see all of the threads, all of the plot lines, and then weave them into a strategy that like is epic and conclusive. Um, I I was just watching the finale again last night and to see how many of the specific characters journeys, not just the plot threads, but specific character arcs culminated within like 10 minutes of the same moment that like everyone's personal journey was concluding at almost the same time when they were intercutting together. It just magical. Like that is yeah. so difficult to do with a couple characters, much less like 15. Totally agree. <laughs> and one of the things that actually jumped out to me that I think is really interesting is Mike's character, you know, Finn Wolfhard, who like mm-hmm. was probably the biggest actor. Like we talked about this, I think a little bit in our first episode, but you know, he's the biggest actor of all the kids coming out of the earlier seasons where it was like, oh, he's he's the guy who's in Ghostbusters. He's the guy who's in It. He's the, you know, he's done all these different right. things. But he was sidelined like the whole season. Okay, I'm in a yeah. truck out there and we talked about that a little bit in the last episode because that was one of my things. Was I was like, are they going to pay this off the way that they need to? And they just found such meaningful moments with him and Eleven and when they're with Argyle and the pizza place and he's talking with her. And then when she's like in this sensory deprivation, he's reaching out to her and like, you can do this and like cheering her on. Um, yeah. They just found such great things from to do, even though he had been sidelined so much of the season. And so th- that to me, what was, what was masterful was I was like, even characters where I was like, Oh, what, what's Mike even doing now? It was like, okay, he's going to come out. This is his time to the plate and he's going to shine. Right. And that speech, just to talk about that speech for a second, like I forget which episode we were we were talking about the Goonies and how Sean Ashton is like the best at like the midpoint, like I'll carry you, Frodo, like that speech. But like Finn Wolfhard's I love you. You have to fight now. L speech. I was listening to it again last night. And like not only is it epic and incredibly well written. Right. It's one of those moments where you're just like, yeah, let's go. But, like, the things he's saying are so real and so affirming and, like, not even all that elevated. I love you on your good days. I love you on your bad days. I love you when you have your powers. I love you when you don't. That whole thing was so deep and affirming. And I was like, this is what you want in an actual real-life relationship is someone who sees you this way. And that, as, like, this core of a character in Stranger Things that is ostensibly a show about children fighting monsters from an alternate dimension is is so great. And I think overall, and we're going to get into this so much more as, as we talk about this episode, but is I think what makes this show so good is that while these characters are doing these thrilling, fun, awesome, exciting things, it, we care about it so much because these quiet moments between them are so resonant and so, like, authentic and real. Well, they paid it off so well because, like, earlier in the season, like, it seems like forever ago, but, like, they're at the roller rink, and she's kind of lying about all her friendships, and she's trying to, like, make it like, hey, I'm doing great. I'm fine without you. You know, she's kind of putting on this pretense, and so you see her insecurity, and then he has insecurity, which is, like, 
oh my God, I'm dating Superman. You know, that's really right. what he's dealing with. And a lot of the season is like, okay, this girl is incredible. She keeps saving the world. And I'm just kind of on the sidelines. What is even my role? What is even my purpose? When's she going to realize she's kind of beyond me and doesn't need me? And, yeah. but you see they're both their insecurity really there. And when you find that depth in the relationship, and again, we talked about, um, Millie Bobby Brown and she's kind of been sidelined and like we, you even maybe gave her your least meaningful character, uh, the last time. And I just thought like one, that was like a scorching hot take, bad take on you. But two, like, uh, <laughs> even though I think I'd supported it at the time when I listened to it back, I was like, what was I saying? No, but I felt such a stronger investment in her and that relationship in volume two. Like, I think that was like, yeah. they really came out and it like, those were some of my favorite scenes was the scenes with them. And, you know, when they get back together, it was just absolutely incredible. Well, we're sort of talking around all these points. Do you want to jump into some categories? Yeah, let's go for it. Uh, did you have let's. some questions? First of all, I know that you before we talked offline, we always like share a little bit. and You're like, Rob, I just have some questions that I want to ask and talk <laughs> about. Do you want to do like oh. Andrew's hit quick list of questions? Okay, here's Andrew's random questions about the mythology of Stranger Things. Uh, why is the tank called Nina? It seems very specific. It's a, it's like a woman's name, and I don't think they ever told us why, right? I have no idea. Maybe they're going to pay it off later, but I really thought they were going to pay that off about it was like Dr. Brenner's actual daughter. Or like there was going to be some character named Nina, like from the Upside Down, and just nothing. Though Argyle's jokes about Nina being a small woman in the desert are hilarious. I liked him more in the last volume, by the way. I thought I agree. I thought he was I agree. Like 500 by the end. I think when he went to the pizza place and he's explaining it all, like it felt like it was more of a purpose to have him there. And totally. uh, I, I liked him much more in the second half than I did in the first half. So I was I was going to wait to talk about Argyle until later, but we, we just brought him up. So let's let's do it. Something that I noticed that I really loved about their treatment of his his character, which I could have done without for most of volume one, was I, I realized that it was an interesting take on like the stoner character, which normally the stoner characters like they don't care about anything, especially their jobs. Right. Like mm. that's the classic stoner trope. But if you watch especially the piggyback episode, Argyle loves surfer boy pizza like they're in the van and he sees the billboard and he's so excited that surfer boy pizza has expanded into Nevada. It's a big deal to him. It's like it's such it's a like, big deal to him. I'm part of a meaningful corporation. I've really given my all. We're opening new franchises. Maybe I'll be a franchise owner one day. You're just like, man, Argyle, he has like some dreams. Like he wants to do something. Right. And so then his whole scene where he's like, let's do a mind fight in a pizza fridge isn't just like silly. It's his contribution because he loves this thing so much that he's like, yep, I know where to get 80 pounds of salt. I know how big the freezer is. She's going to fit. And like they're all planning for war and he's making pizza like somehow his character that I did not really enjoy for the first six episodes did really pay off in the last episode. And I was like, good job, man. Like, I don't maybe need more of him, but it was worth the ride. Like, I thought his he had kind of a special contribution there at the end. It added a lot of heart uh, to, to that. I just kind of liked what they did with him. Yeah, I think the problem with him in the first part was he just felt like forced comic relief. It was just like, okay, yeah. we got to have the 80s stoner. That's kind of a trope. And so we're just going to do that. 
and that and just, he's just like oh saying these like stonery things and giving little quips and that's kind of it, all there was to it but there was no right. real purpose i was like what are we doing with Argyle? What's going on there? But then when they actually like, okay, he has his own people and they're speaking surfer boy pizza language code and they're hanging out with each other. All of a sudden I was like, okay, this is fun. This is enjoyable. This is like a real purpose for him to be here versus just giving the little quips. Totally. Um, okay. My next, my next question is when L piggybacks initially before she goes to the, um, I was going to call it the enchantment under the sea dance, but that is back to the future. Um, the snowball before she goes to like the, the snowball. snowball. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The snowball memory. Um, she goes to like this like skate park. Why does she go there? And she spends kind of a decent amount of time in like child Max's brain at this skate area as opposed to going to the snowball. Like what was what was the point of that? It was it, it felt like a kind of a waste of time on a, a rewatch. And I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be getting out of that. I think we're trying to get some sort of connection with child Max and this is her backstory, and Eleven is kind of like trying to get oriented to that. So that was kind of my take on it, was like, okay, this is a really meaningful place to Max, and Eleven is just like, all right, what is going on with her? i got to figure this yeah. out, and so I, I think that was it. You know, the, the other thing that I was kind of thinking about I was is, you ever, like, watch a movie, and it's like someone's, like, trying to find a name in the phone book, and they, like, open up right to, like, the name they're looking for, and there it is on the page? Like they don't have to like turn any pages <laughs> when, yep. when, when like normally yes. you're going through. Now I'm making a phone book reference. It's like Sarah and, Connor, and, like boom, right there. Boom, right there the it is, book. right. Yeah. Right. I was thinking maybe it was like, I don't know how to go inside someone's brain psychically, but like what are the odds you land right in the memory that they're hiding in? Maybe she had to like look around a little bit. And so like jumping in her brain, she kind of wound up somewhere else. Maybe it was that. I don't know. It just it, it felt like I was supposed to get something narratively out of that that I wasn't quite sure what it was supposed to be. Not super important. This one is kind of important, though, that I, I, I wondered the very first time that it happened um, when they're in Vecna's house. Right. Uh, the, the three Steve, Nancy and and Robin, and they make it all the way through the vines. And then the house shakes suddenly and Robin trips and trips on a vine. What made the house shake? There wasn't like a bunch of earthquakes in the upside down until then. That felt like something caused that. But it didn't seem like anyone else in any of the other like plots or timelines or anything had caused anything to create that shake. I thought it was just like they were like disrupting the house itself and the house was coming alive and like something was off balance and that's why it shaked and was going on there. Like, okay, I felt like I need to watch that again, but that's what I felt like watching it was like, okay, the house is coming alive and getting angry. That, yeah, maybe, maybe that makes sense. That's like a small little nitpick, but everything in this is so motivated and the way that all of the like intersecting plot lines are like tripping things into other plot lines it's so clear and so so well motivated that that when that house shook i was like that had to have been caused by something everything else has a cause and effect and they're doing it such a good job of of, of like telegraphing that all the time that i i, I thought maybe i had like missed something because that's how how well everything else is tied together yeah absolutely i don't know i i don't know what else that would have been but it is like such a barrage of information coming at you that like maybe yeah it is. I think that's what I like about this season so much is it definitely like rewatches are rewarded. You see like, oh, they're setting this up here and this is why. And so that may be something that I'll catch on another rewatch. Totally. Um, here's just kind of a silly one, though. But like as soon as that happens, the, the like the vines grab them and they're all like held up against the wall. Right. And getting like strangled. 
how long are they there? In screen time, it's like 45 minutes. How long do you think in real time they were actually held up against that wall? Because so much happens before they get freed. It feels like they should be triple dead by the time that those vines actually let them go. Now, this is a good nitpick. I had several things. I was like, one, like, do they still have circulation to their arms and legs? Like, are they just totally, I mean, because they're being, like, squeezed. Like, I've never been squeezed by a, like, Vecna vine. So I don't know what Which, that by the is way, are so like. creepy. Those vines, yeah. like, when they're moving on the inside of doors and stuff, like, they have really upped their game on the creepy factor for the upside down. Super creepy. And so I'm like, I don't know what it feels like, but but I agree. I was like, they're being squeezed forever. Like, at the very least, it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm a little out of breath, but we can keep going. I'm like, they've lost, like, all circulation. They may have, someone may have passed out. Someone may have died. Like, it did seem like a really, really long time. But it, I do think passage of time overall is a little overwhelming because it was like, okay, we're here for a long time. Is this all real time for different people? Or are there other chunks? Right. Like, well, that's, and, and that's the other thing is like so much of it is happening at the same time, but we're watching it out of time. Right. Right. So yes. all of these plot lines are theoretically happening simultaneously, but we're having to watch them in sequence. So I, I think that was that was my question is it is like it was like 45 minutes of screen time. But you think it was like five minutes of real time or like, I don't know, it, it seemed like they should have been super dead. And I, I mean, I'm very glad they weren't. Those are like three of my favorite characters. Right. I, I think it was supposed to be five minutes. I think that's what we're supposed to take it as. And like, okay. you know, some things it's like, okay, we're spending longer with these characters and we're just going to spend a few minutes here. It's not yeah. like, it's not like 24 where there's like a clock ticking on Nancy and Steve and that same <laughs> clock is ticking in Russia. There's not, it's not right. that real time of a show. Very, very true. My final big question, just about the mythology, it just I'm curious what you think. We get a glimpse into the Mind Flayer and how Vecna interacts with it. And what the kids had said earlier on in the season is that, like, Vecna was the Mind Flayer's, like, general. And what we realize here is that actually Vecna is in control of all of this stuff and is the Mind Flayer or is working through the Mind Flayer or there's this weird dusty stuff that was there all along that like what what do you think is going on there? Because they don't really give us all that information and they're probably going to give it to us in season five. But like what do you think is going on there with like Vecna and the Mind Flayer particles? I think they're retconning the mythology honestly like a little bit. I think their biggest sure. miss of a season was season two overall. I think the Mind Flayer, like, while cool, like, I've seen Stranger Things a bunch of times, seen all the seasons, and I still couldn't really explain, like, what the Mind Flayer is, what it wants, what it does, how it works. It's just kind of like, oh, it sounds cool and looks cool, but there's mm -hmm. no, like, human element to it. And so I think that's part of what they did really smart in season three was they're like, oh, we're going to, like, take over people. We're going to do, like, a John Carpenter, like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the thing sort of vibe. And so Billy mm -hmm. actually became the actual face of the villain. And what they did even smarter in season four was like, no, we need a Freddy Krueger. We need a Darth Vader. Like Vecna is the guy. And so I think yeah. like for all practical purposes, like Vecna is our guy. He is our villain. He is our Darth Vader. Mind Flayer may be like the Emperor. Like, hey, the Mind Flayer is even more powerful. But like, I don't like there's no emotional connection there right like it's just kind oh, of for just, sure like, yeah yeah if anything like vecna adds the emotional connection to it because of his fascination with spiders and the mind flayer is like a big living spider essentially 
And so that's yeah. kind of what it is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get to some of the other categories now. Like, I want to ask, like, okay, you've seen all the shows now. Did you have a most meaningful character in volume two? Is there someone who really, like, jumped out to you as, like, hey, this is the character that's most meaningful to me? So the thing that I love about this series is their use of the ensemble. And I think this season specifically leaned into their ensemble nature way more than any other seasons, partially because they broke everyone up. If you go back to seasons one, two, and three, and you had to pick like who your protagonist was, your protagonist season one is probably Mike protagonist season two and three is like 11 probably. Yep. Hopper and maybe Joyce here and there, kind of like your main protagonist and everyone else in secondary right. characters. And they moved all of our protagonists into subplots. And so by moving all of our main protagonists into side plots and populating the main plot with side characters, it really like spread out the interest in everyone having somewhat equal weight, which I thought was really cool and really smart. You know, that's a great point. I didn't think of it quite like that, but yeah, it's normally like, because Nancy is kind of like she's on the side journey and Steve and Dustin have to do something a little bit, but they're just kind of like something to yeah. cut away to. But like yeah. all the other characters are actually worried about what's going on in Hawkins. Like Hawkins right. is the heart and soul of the show. And now totally. it's like Dustin and Robin and Nancy and Steve. Lucas and Max. They're all the people who are, yeah, they're more side characters. They're really like, okay, Vecna's coming for them. They're walking into his lair. Like everyone else just has to like, okay, we can help like cheer them on from afar, but they're not part of it. You know, particularly right. Hopper, who I talked about, and maybe I want to talk about real quick, which is like, I loved all the Hopper stuff in the last two episodes as well. I just thought yeah. he, he was maybe one of my most least meaningful characters, which now I feel uh -huh. like so bad saying, because I just <laughs> thought his stuff was... His stuff was so good. And when he like picks up that sword and goes and like charges at him, oh my it was God. one of those things that I was like, this should not work. But oh my gosh, I have goosebumps for days. Like, that is so cool. So that to me, when it comes to like most meaningful characters, and I'm cheating here, like I feel like I've been cheating on several of these episodes recently. But like, I think that's one of the things this show does so well and why we love it and talk so passionately about it is moments like that like the sword moment where hopper like picks up this sword which why is there a sword in a russian prison camp right and you know which they did set up it, by the way they which they set totally up. set up yeah they they set up they give all the prisoners these weird you know like weapons to what, fight with and so like it totally makes sense like, hey you're gonna yeah so it was like because i was talking to someone there was like there would not be a sword in a russian prison i was like no 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 uh, no no, no there is. they gave them all the weird weapons and the spears and javelins to fight the totally world. totally but like that should be kind of cheesy but the reason that it's earned and the reason there's so many earned moments like that in the show is because you care about Hopper. It's because of that scene with him and Joyce where he's talking about the date that he missed and how he missed all of this food. It's one of the cutest scenes in any of this this season is the two of them like reminiscing about the date that they want to go on. And these 40 to 50 year old people like flirting like teenagers. It's awesome. Lovable. And so it's so lovable. And you get that moment and you're like, I love this man. And so then to see him pick up a sword and 
slice the head off of something in slow motion. You're, you're just all about it. And I was noticing how many like slow motion character hero, like walking into places shots of like people like walking up in a triangle, like those just epic, like camera push in hero shots are in these last two episodes. And every single one of them feels so awesome. And it's because you love every character in that shot. And it could feel really cheesy if like you were just here for the plot. And it's because you love them that these teenagers that are like, walking into a ammo store in a triangle and a hero shot suddenly feels awesome. Yeah, and I wanted to stay with this. And my most meaningful character of this season, I think is Lucas, who has often been one of the side characters. You know, he and Dustin are kind of like, Will is the poor kid who the stuff always happens to him. Mike is kind of the hero. <laughs> and then Dustin's kind of the comic relief. And Lucas is just kind of their cool guy, whatever else. But I thought they yeah. did such a great job with him and his character this season. Like, I loved him playing basketball. I loved him, like, having to, uh, you know, okay, do I hang out with the popular kids or my friends? And then he has to, like, protect his friends from the basketball kids. And then eventually, like, that those scenes with Max... When he asks Max out on the date and he draws all the stuff, I was just like, man, they're giving his character so much to do, so much depth and so much heart. And even when everything falls apart at the end and happens with Max and then he's kind of still at the hospital with her, it's just like, I don't know, I just felt like he was a character who really learned like, okay, who am I going to be? What am I going to fight for? Like, what matters most to me? And he had to make real choices that like affected him and cost him more than probably anyone else in the show. And that's what I've like loved and appreciated about his character. Uh, Andrew, what's your most meaningful scene of volume two? So most meaningful scene jumps right in off of that. I thought the entire sort of attic fight with Lucas and Jason that inevitably led to Max dying, that whole like climax of, I guess, the whole season. But I like literally did the thing where you like, cup your hands over your mouth and stare at the screen when Max's bone started to break. Oh my gosh. I, I knew that they were going to get to the point where like she like levitated and like they obviously had to put her in extreme danger, but I did not think they were going to start doing that. And as soon as her leg snapped back, I was like, Oh my God, they are actually going to kill her because like you can't come back from a Vecna attack, right? Like it's not like a right. bullet wound or something like you that it's it's obliterating. We talked about that in the, in the in the first episode, right? Of how horrifying these kills are. There's a whole bunch of elements of it that I want to talk about. Some people I've heard when, when talking about the show have talked about how the splitting up of all these characters lessened their enjoyment of certain plot lines because your characters that you wanted to be together were now in totally different spaces. And I hear that argument. But in this final episode, something that I loved was because you knew exactly where every character was and because you knew exactly how far away and how impossible it was for any of those characters to come help any of our other characters, when a character got in a life or death situation, you knew they were alone. I think right. a lot of the time, like you have a situation where, you know, like the bad guy shows up and has its hand around your hero's neck and you're like, ah, eh, someone's going to show up. I don't know who it is, but someone's going to show up with a shovel and hit the bad guy on the back of the head. Right. Right. In this final battle, when Steve and Nancy and Robin get the vines around their necks, you know there's no one else in the Upside Down who's coming. They are alone. I mean, Hopper's in Russia. Lucas is fighting Jason, and when Jason right. comes up there and his sister gets tackled, Jason comes up and it's just like, and he's like, okay, whatever she's doing, you need to make her stop. And he's like, dude, you don't understand, but you're like, okay, there's right. no one else that can like 
save him or stop this. He's got to fight him toe to toe. I mean, that's where I felt it the strongest. As soon as Jason showed up, I was like, oh, someone else has to come help. And I was like, there's no there's actually no one like it's all Lucas. This is it. And how well that upped the stakes by spreading everyone out like that. I was like, this has so much more stakes. So I thought that made the final scene in the attic specifically with Lucas way more tense because you knew no one was coming to save the day. I do feel like there were episodes where it was like, okay, we're moving chess pieces. You know, again, it was like, okay, we're like driving in a van into Utah. Okay, they're like on a plane to Russia. You know, there was like a lot of practical things of just like, we've got to travel. I mean, literally like... They had never traveled before like they did in this show. And so they're traveling yeah. to all these different places. So it's kind of like, all right, what's going on here? And so if there is a criticism of the season that I could see, it was like, oh, we're like seeing the whole world and we're on a cross country van trip and we're on a plane trip talking to like this Alaskan guy trying to get him to Russia. But but I agree that like the way that it paid it all off when Eleven is there and she's reaching out to Max and they're both in the upside down, but it's like, okay, Eleven's there alone with Vecna. Like no one else can come in and help her as well as like the other guys are just watching Eleven, like in the freezer, like there's nothing else we can do, you know? And so you did feel that helplessness. You did feel like um, they even played with this idea of like, we're in over our heads this time. Like we're trying to fight something, but we don't, really think we're going to make it out alive i mean absolutely and i think my favorite moment or like the moment that hit me kind of in the heart the most is after max has died right she's lying there on the ground dying in lucas's arms and it's her and and lucas together and he's screaming for erica to call the ambulance and then it flips to that mirror dimension whatever that is it's not the upside down it's wherever l goes when she's using the professor x cerebro power yeah yeah like like (laughs) it's got like two inches of water and it's like a big sound stage and yeah (laughs) (laughs) right it like flips and cuts there and you see that she's there with them right and she's like grieving and she's like a wreck and she's right next to her two friends but she's not and so she's totally alone mourning and grieving her own failure to protect her friend it's like crying over like your friend's death with your friends but being totally and utterly alone and having to process your own failure alone while being there it was like i i almost started crying when they cut to that shot and seeing her there because she like loves max she's like her best friend basically and she failed and to have a shot where someone is with everyone else and yet actually physically alone and that I would like register that and feel that is just genius filmmaking um, and really, really hit me of that kind of isolation and how emotionally wrecking that would be. Yeah, it was really, really powerful. And I think one thing they did really well, even to add that emotion was they kept harvesting seasons that have come before, right? Like they're cutting away to like Max and they're like smash cutting, like her laughing for the first time and her and Eleven like trying on things and you see like their young innocence and then she's grieving and the like watery stuff and even going to the snowball dance, you know, like they're, they're going to the snowball dance. They're playing like dream a little dream, but it's just like, Oh, this place that was so innocent and fun and cute for them has been like perverted and lost and destroyed. And so I just thought like that was one thing that I appreciated about this season was like they like mined all the stuff from their seasons before and like but built something new and fresh on top of it right that ability to create new stories out of the emotional journey that your characters have already been on i mean that's the holy grail of long form serial storytelling and they're they're crushing it how about you so my most meaningful scene is uh the helicopter 
crashing like right as the car drove up and i think this is yeah. the same a similar sort of idea this in the papa episode and i think like the reason that scene was like so meaningful to me was because it was like all these things like coming together it was like the matthew modine plot which maybe we should talk about matthew modine for a second like then yeah. paying that off the i love the what came before it which was like infantry like breaking into the underground tunnel and there the guards are all standing there with guns looking out and the camera's pushing through and i was like oh this is star wars like this is the first shot of star wars absolutely the, the beginning of a new hope like that's what it is it's like okay and then darth vader comes through and there was a firefight and all this sort of stuff and i couldn't believe like what an awesome reference it was but anyway yeah. all of that comes through and she goes and like realizes like what her powers are and who she's going to be and then Matthew Modine, like, comes and he's like, hey, you know, like, I did this all for you. Like, let me know that you understand. And she's like, goodbye, Papa. She doesn't say that she understands. Like, she doesn't give him that satisfaction yeah. of saying, she hey. She doesn't give him closure. Right. She doesn't forgive he, him. She's just like, she's like, no, you don't get that forgiveness. You don't get that understanding. And I think, like, the reason that all paid off to me is probably in the back of my mind, I did have a, our conversation about, like, oh, Eleven is just kind of a back character. I don't care about her journey. And I realized, like, oh, the reason I should care about her is because she's grappling with, like, where did I come from and who am I and what have I done and what am I going to do? And I thought, like, just all that epic stuff coming together and then her realizing, like, no, I know who I am. I know the strength that I have and I know what it needs to be used for was really, really powerful. And just all those pieces coming together, like, worked for me. Yeah. The first time I watched the pop episode, I remember watching Matthew Modine die and be like, yeah, suck it, man. Like you, <laughs> you're like a manipulative, like abuser, like, yeah, time to die. Suck it. Um, but the second time I like really wanted Elle to say she understood. I don't know what it was, but there was something where I actually like I felt like I understood Dr. Brenner's motivation and that felt really weirdly dirty because like he was this awful like child abuser basically but like it's so fascinating the way that Matthew Modine played that character and if you hear him interviewed he like truly believes that Dr. Brenner is not a bad guy he's figured out how to like completely wrap his head around that this guy is absolutely trying to and in fact doing the right thing even if he is a little cruel and so I think that comes through in that performance of how much he loves Eleven and is willing to do horrifying things because he actually believes he's doing the right thing. I actually really wanted him to, like, have that peace as he was dying and not getting it. Like, it shook me a little bit on a second watch. And the first watch, I was just like, yeah, you should die, man. But the second time, I, I had a completely different reaction. I actually want to defend Dr. Brenner, the character, and his actions, which is like kind of like defending Hannibal Lecter and his actions. It's like, no, you know, maybe there's a time to kill someone, you know, like, and so I feel like this is a fool's errand to defend Dr. Brenner, but I'm going to try, which two things jumped out to me that I think are really important. One is he's operating within the confines of the military, right? And so the military know about who he is. They know about what he's doing. And he's consciously thinking like, I need to make sense of these kids, or if I can't make sense of these kids, someone else is going to get their hands on these children and do something much worse. And I thought that's part of the reason that whole sequence was so powerful to me was because he has the revelation of like, no, 
I know what these kids are, I know what they're capable of, and I can help them harness it in a way that will be like helpful and good for the world. You know, it's kind of the Frankenstein thing that we've talked yeah. about in other episodes, but it's that sort of idea of like, I can harness this for good instead of evil. And two, I think what was so powerful was like, he did see Henry and he did see like, okay, I can find something good in this kid. I can help him out. And then he realizes like, oh no, I've got to send all the forces in. He kind of spends so much of the rest of his time, like chasing Henry down and trying to figure out like how to help him out. Yeah, well, even that idea of like, like we see Henry as this just like diabolical monster, right? And he is, I and mean, he's like fully past the point of humanity. But in in the conversation that Eleven has with Doctor Brenner, she's like, "You were sending me out to find him," and he never admits that he was. But you can kind of see it in his eyes that he's like, "Yeah, I never gave up on this kid." Like there is this actual, full on, true paternal nature in his performance, and it's not like I think there's this like weird evil dad thing we see in a lot of movies nowadays like even even Thanos has like all of his followers call you know they're all children of Thanos right like he has his weird like father complex right but like Matthew Modine's performance is like truly paternal it is and and I think like is it weird is it messed up like yes but I think his motivations in his own mind and his own morality that he's operating in which is like okay these kids are all in a bunker they've all been identified by the United States government they've all had tags put on them they all have these powers that they're not going to be able to make sense of you know like Dr. Xavier like we say it's what he does is good because he has a nice mansion it's beautiful but Dr. Brenner (laughs) we say is bad because he's in a bunker but it's like he didn't choose the bunker I'm sure he would choose like a nice mansion to like do things with the kids. And, and I'm not defending him. You know, he I mean, he like, also uses cattle prods <laughs> and electric shock therapy. I think it's more that than the bunker situation. I think it's the constant electrocution and physical abuse. Some of his methods are a little unorthodox, <laughs> but, you know, he's he's trying to like harness something there. He sees it. For, for someone um, who talks about parenting more than anything else in this podcast, you are digging yourself a very strange hole right now, my friend. <laughs> I, know. I know. I'm like, the kids on Jurassic Park are horrible and Dr. Brenner is good. That's my... <laughs> oh, well, we just lost all our subscribers. Uh, it's been nice, everyone. Thanks for watching the meaning of the movie. One other thing I want to talk... A couple other things I want to talk about, Andrew, but one of them is, you know, we made some predictions in the first episode. What are some predictions that you got right and one some ones that you got wrong okay so when we talked about the character that we thought was most likely to die i didn't say eddie out loud because i thought he was the obvious answer and i wanted a hot take i was like what would be like the craziest character to kill that they might actually kill so i started talking about like maybe killing lucas or killing mike or characters that they probably wouldn't but i thought might be like interesting from a story perspective so this is me like calling my shot that I didn't actually call, but I did think they were going to kill Eddie, even though I didn't say it out loud. Um, I thought that was very likely going to happen. And yeah, he ate the big one. The uh, bats ate him alive. So we made like 10 predictions in that episode, <laughs> but you're talking about the prediction that you didn't actually make <laughs> the prediction that was just in your head. That's the one that you're going to go with. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Is that uh, that's not really playing by the rules, is it? Uh <laughs> I was with you. I, I did think like, okay, Eddie has like the writing on the wall. There's kind of the pattern of like 
Bob is the special character that comes in and then he gets killed. Yeah. And Billy, this is the special character that comes in. And so I'm, I was with you. I thought picking Eddie was cheating. I think one thing that we did get right and wrong was we said one of the main kids or someone main is going to die. And I was kind of yeah. really leaning into that because I thought they had yeah. to do it. I thought just killing Eddie is it's fine. Like, and I, I was bummed to see him go. I loved Eddie. But, like, it's not surprising. We don't have four seasons of connection right. with him. And so what was interesting was they kind of cheated. They actually killed one of the kids. But then, like, Eleven had, like, Rapunzel powers or something like that and, like, brought her back to life. I'm I'm not quite sure, like, how that worked. Right. So we, we already talked about Max's death quite a bit, and that was super shocking. And when Elle brought her back, I was initially, like, mad because... I did not want Max to die, but also I did not want them to start reversing consequences. Right. They already kind of did that with Hopper. Uh, and I was like, you can't just keep unkilling people that you've killed. But it landed for me when at the end, Elle goes back into um, her mind. I thought this was so great. And like, she can't find her. It's just the the vacant black two inches of water void and that Max isn't in there. And because she spent the whole episode in Max's mind... The fact that we show her going in there and just like calling her name and she's not there and it's just empty. That to me was like re-devastating. OK, Max might not be dead, but Max is somehow gone. And that in, in, in this world of the Upside Down is understandable in its weird mystery and equally devastating, I think. So they they were able to have consequences while not fully killing Max. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, like, what they did with Max, which is, like, they took her right to the edge. I'm really curious of what's going to happen with her next season. Like, is she just in the hospital bed the whole time? Do they, like, we can talk about predictions for the next season later on, but, like, I think she's one of the interesting pieces of, like, what do they do with her? Right. Okay, I want to do one other category, which is kind of unusual for us, but, like... Stranger Things is a show with a ton of references. There are 80s references. There are references to Pop-Tarts and bands and all sorts of different stuff. Are there references or themes or things that jumped out to you? And what jumped out to you this season in the Stranger Things references? So I'm not as big into 80s stuff or Stephen King stuff as you, you are. So you've probably pulled a whole lot more than I have. But I do love the book It. And there hasn't been a whole lot of references to Stephen King's It, I think, in the series so far. And I saw two pretty huge ones um, at the end of this this season. And the first one was when all of the gates open and like the town basically has a giant earthquake. Um, that's exactly how, um, not to spoil it for anyone, if you're listening, uh, it spoilers ahead. But in the books, not the movies, but there's a giant earthquake that basically sinks right. Main Street. And that's kind of how it ends is they fight the villain and there's a gigantic explosion. and The town basically gets destroyed, um, which you don't see coming. And I was watching that all happen in the show and I was like, oh, this feels so much like it. Well, I- one thing on that is it, the creature, Pennywise, whatever else. We're both big fans of the book, and um, one thing that's so fascinating about it is it is intertwined with the town of Derry. Like, it's, like, part of it. And it feels yeah. kind of like that that mirror thing with Hawkins as well of, like, whatever's going on with Hawkins, like, Vecna and the Mind Flayer and the Upside Down, it's, like, intertwined with Hawkins. You know, it, they even kind of doubled down on this season, which is, like, 
the kids are in California, they're in Russia, and it's like kind of tangential to what's going on. But the heart of like right. the, the white hot center of what they're dealing with is happening in Hawkins. That's where the real evil is. That's, it's kind of in the belly of Hawkins, which is very similar to it. Totally. The other it reference that I saw, which I actually really liked, was the Jason character who has that great scene with Lucas at the end. And I, I've heard from some people that talked to the show about that they felt like Jason was kind of like unnecessary and the whole satanic panic plotline was tangential and like we don't need this crazy guy running around the town with a gun. But it reminded me so much of the Henry Bowers character from for it, sure, for sure, which to me, I thought was also very intentional. And that is that, like, while you have Pennywise in it, the supernatural villain from an alternate dimension who's coming and, like, causing all sorts of havoc, you also have an actual, real, living, evil child who is there also, like, mucking it all up. And it marries the supernatural fear with the reality of, like, real human conflict um, when, when you have a actual, like, um, human villain next to your um, supernatural villain um it doesn't just make it all fantasy you have to grapple with what happens when we do evil to one another and right. so by creating the jason character um it felt very much like the henry bowers character and while henry is just kind of a, just a, a horrible child i found myself in the final scene actually relating to jason quite a bit which i thought was really interesting he's awful but when he comes up the stairs and is trying to rescue max i thought in any other movie this character would be the hero, right? He's the character that comes in and saves the girl at the end with a gun and says like all of the lines he sang where he's like, I don't care what you do. I'm going to stand back. And if you don't end this, I'm going to, I'm going to shoot you is what a hero, a hero in like Die Hard or any of these other movies that we would be behind our hero breaking in with the gun and like saving the day and realizing like this kid's wrong though. And it was a very interesting moment. Yeah, it looks really, you know, like Lucas is like, you don't understand what you're talking about. But for Jason, you could see like, oh, all the pieces are coming together. It's like, OK, there's a yeah. cult. There's a cult that's doing this stuff. There's a cult that's like a, antagonizing girls and using powers. And like he knew there was something supernatural to it. But he also knew like it was connected to that cult, at least in his head. And so when he walked in, it yeah. was like, oh, yeah. And, and for me, it was like. It's great. It's another level of conflict for these characters to have to go through and have to deal with. And for Lucas, it's like, right. that's his boy, you know, that's his guy who's right. just, you know, I mean, for us, we, we've spent a lot of episodes, 13 hours watching it. But for Lucas, it was a couple of days before that that guy who was like his biggest hero was putting him on his shoulder and saying, you hit the shot, man, you did it. You're awesome. And so for yeah. him to like go full circle with that, I thought it was a great interesting use of the character i thought they used him just enough to like be right. this menacing presence i loved nancy's interaction with him at the gun shop i thought it was so totally. fun and so i just thought he was this great menacing presence as were those boys but not to like they're just a side you know villain or whatever sure. else to all the main vecna stuff and so i thought it was a great use of it absolutely and i think to be able to kind of see myself in the character in that one moment of being like oh he thinks he's heroic and then realizing like oh we all have maybe the capability of this kind of evil right none of us are vecna but we all have the potential to maybe turn into this and allow our grief to let us go off the rails if we don't check ourselves it really kind of like centered up the like what does it mean to do evil to one another i thought it was really cool absolutely um for me the references that really I so appreciated was the use of music in this season. You know, yeah. I saw Thor, um, which is not good. And <laughs> all the music Love in and Thunder. Thor, yeah. yeah, Thor, Love and Thunder. Really rough. 
really rough. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. I'm not I'm not here to bash Thor necessarily, but like they're dropping in music that I love. They're dropping in Guns N' Roses and Dio, Rainbow in the Dark, you know, like these rock and banger songs are like so good, but they're completely unmotivated. They're totally just like needle drops for the sake of it. And I was just mm-hmm. like, this has no meaning to it. And then on the other side of it, the way that they use music with all the characters in this season, I thought was so powerful. I thought it was their best use of music um, ever in the show. And that's saying a lot. But I think the reason why is because when you're a freshman, sophomore in high school, that's when music really becomes the center of your life. And so for these characters, like for Eddie, like Master of Puppets, when that would have first came out, that would have rocked his world. I mean, like, I mean, I was there, like, I mean, I was a little kid, but like that song was like so huge. It changed what heavy metal was and what heavy metal meant. And um, for him to like play that song and it wasn't just like, oh, this is a cool needle drop. It was just like you said it earlier, but like that moment shouldn't have worked. But it worked because it was like, oh, I totally believe that to this guy, this is the most meaningful song in the world. And the fact that he actually gets to play this as a hero in his own rock concert of his mind, <laughs> um, it's just cool, man. It's just really, really yeah. neat. And so I just thought that. And then also, like, the idea of, like, this Kate Bush song really meaning so yeah. much to Max and the headphones and, like, music being the thing that centered her and kept her safe. Uh, that's what it feels like to be an abused teenager to be a hurting teenager it's like okay music is my hiding place music is where i can kind of go and explore Mm. my own thoughts and feelings and i thought that's super true yeah just their use of the of music throughout the whole season i thought was so powerful and bringing the kate bush song back and like the final attack on vecna um just and i mean to be to to be able to um i think that's what music does even just like orchestral themes or whatever but it knits together different moments within a story by using the same theme and so even though max was out of commission to have all of our heroes like going after the monster with running up that hill playing it felt so powerful like i wouldn't have wanted any other song for this season playing during that final moment you know and then they they almost like remixed it they paired it with like the stranger things kind of like score in there too it was so epic and it's because of all those things you're saying yeah their mixing of like songs and scores like what they did with the journey song and then put the score to that like it was like so stinking cool and i thought the same thing about kate bush i was actually like I wonder if they knew, like, when they were putting this song in there, that, like, oh, yeah, we're about to make this massive, massive hit, maybe the biggest song of the year, this song that was from, you know, 35 years ago. So Yeah, it's like playing on the radio. Like, I jump in the car and drive for a few hours in L.A. right now doing work, and I'll hear that song, like, a couple times. It's like (laughs) they're playing it everywhere again. Okay, well, let's get to our final thoughts, which is, like, what is this movie or show trying to say? We've probably talked around this or about this, but this is kind of your final argument. What is Stranger Things season four trying to say, Andrew? So I think maybe this whole show, but specifically this season is all about relationships and like fighting for friendship and fighting for the people you love in your life, being there for them, protecting them and how uh, relationships and love within those relationships makes you stronger and makes you a better person. And I think so many stories do that. Like that's basically the main theme behind Harry Potter. Voldemort is alone and evil, but Harry has friends. And so because he has friends, he has something to fight for like that. Having friends and that makes you better than the villain is sort of a 
maybe overtired cliche at this point, but because of how much time they spend with these relationships and you seeing how these relationships in very real ways turn and affect one another's life, like Steve trying to help Robin deal with her issues with her crush makes Steve a better person. And that's not a plot line that you would be used to seeing in a normal show um, makes Steve and Robin then going after a monster with Molotov cocktails feel epic and strong and amazing. And so, I, I mean, to me, that's that's what it is, is is it's 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 all about how growing within your relationships and loyalty makes you strong and heroic. There was probably a way better way to say that, but that's what I think it is. <laughs> OK, I have a meaning of Stranger Things and particularly this season, which is along the theme of what you said. But I want to add to it, which is when you're a kid, you have these relationships and you have these friendships But as you get older and as life happens, those friendships start to fray and change and evolve and morph. And I think that's what this season Mm. is about, is every single friendship, meaningful one, like Will, you know, is kind of in the background, but his, you know, friendship with Mike is changing and his own feelings are changing, you know, and that's happening. Lucas and Max, like, they're all cute and innocent, and then all of a sudden they've been through trauma, and then Lucas is there, like can I still have something with her? Are we too far gone? Are we too far lost? You know, Nancy and Steve, they have this kind of moment in the car where they're talking about the six little nuggets and that little, that that amazing (laughs) scene where he's talking about his dream date, but then she gets home and she's with Jonathan. And I didn't even talk about that prediction, which is like, I thought Jonathan was going to die in this dramatic way. Cause it's like, how are they going to deal with that? But the way that they dealt with it was Jonathan's like, are we okay? And she's like, yeah, yeah, we're fine. But you know, like, Oh no, this relationship, which was so sweet and innocent in season two is now like stretched thin. And she's kind of in a love triangle all of a sudden all over again. And so I I think that's, what's so interesting to me is like, your relationships do not stay the same. Your friendships do not stay the same, especially mm. when you're growing up. And especially when you're going through some real stuff where people have to make decisions and you have to come out on the other side of your own uh, good decisions, bad decisions, trauma. And I think that's what uh, I so appreciated about this season. And that's why I was willing to like have them spread out all over the world. It's like they were all kind of asking like, okay, do these relationships still work? Am I still whole? Do I still have something to offer? I mean, Hopper's definitely asking himself about that with Joyce. Uh, Joyce is asking about it with him. You know, everyone's kind of looking at that. And so they're, yeah, it's about with relationships, we can get through anything, but it's also about the insecurities that we bring to our own relationships that are sometimes the biggest barrier to being close with someone. Totally. Those insecurities and our own stuff, our own baggage and our own mess that we end up bringing to relationships, but oftentimes gets in the way. I think this season is dealing with that in so many of the characters is how do I get past my own mess and does my mess belong in this relationship and can people see this new part of me and is that okay within this friendship? Like, I mean, I I think it's one of the reasons that I love these characters and want to go on this journey with them, you know? Absolutely. All right, I have one final thing, which is like after this season, you know, I love to list things and I love to rank them. So I have my definitive Stranger Things ranking of season by season. Got it. Are you ready for this? All right, let's see if it lines up with mine. Go ahead. All right, so my bottom of the list, like this is number four, which is season two. 
I think it's the weakest season of Stranger Things. There's a lot of like bright spot moments. I don't think Stranger Things has any season that is a total miss for me. But I think season two is probably the most uneven. They had this massive hit. They were trying to figure it out. They have the whole like episode about number eight, her sister, which is kind of like the Nikki and Paolo episode of Stranger Things. It's like, like notice how number (laughs) number eight wasn't even in like. In any of the backstories at all, they kind of like pretend that didn't exist. They're like, oh, this weird kind of like one off episode. We're embarrassed by it. And oh, so I man. Think, you just said Nikki and Paolo. And that is a, such a deep nerd cut. I'm not even going to address what that is referencing because it's just pure nerd fandom. Well done. Well done. If you know, you know. So the season two is at the bottom. Then next okay. I have um, season three, which I okay. really, really like. Uh, so much fun stuff at the mall characters all that sort of stuff uh it's great i don't have any gripes with season three no notes and then next to season four uh is my second place which i just think honestly is probably the most accomplished season of stranger things of what they're doing like we've talked about and gushed about over the last hour like like this is a beautiful show with like sophisticated storytelling and so much power but my number one season of Stranger Things is still season one. I just think it's so minimal and sparse and perfect. I think Joyce holding the Christmas lights and trying to talk to Will in the upside down, him disappearing, the simple mission of like, where did our friend go? Trying to find him, finding Eleven for the first time and the kids trying to interact with her. I just think it's perfection and it's still my top ranked season. And so those are my definitive rankings. Season two, season three, season four, season one. All right. Um, that's very different from mine. My least favorite season. So my bottom season three, it needed to happen. But I felt the growing pains in that show. Everything was light and fluffy and bubbly in the mall. It just it felt out of place. And I felt like they were trying to figure out like there was Russians in the basement that felt very strange and very kind of out of place. How are there Russians and Hawkins under a mall? Like It, it, it felt <laughs> in a show where you have an alternate dimension of monsters. For some reason, the Russians in the basement felt too uh, un- unbelievable to me. A little um, too cute. See, I don't know. And then it was paired with maybe the grossest. A villain, which was like melting human and animal flesh into a giant mind flayer thing. So I think season three is my bottom, even though it's a fantastic season and I would still recommend it to anybody. It's my bottom. Uh, I would say season two next. I think I like season two a lot more than you did. Uh, I liked all of the stuff with uh, with Will and the mind flayer, like invading his mind back in the real world. I thought all that stuff was really fun. Um, and then I would probably say season one after that because it is flawless. And I would put season four at the top because I think what they're doing right now with the just the sheer complexity and how everything lands and how I have almost no notes on a show that has this many plot lines and this many characters and nothing feels wasted. I have so much respect for it and so much joy for it that I think the opposite. It's not simple. And I see so many showrunners after they get their beautiful, simple season one done kind of fall flat when they don't know how to take something and the fact that this is just on an upward trajectory and this is as good as it is in a season four is stunning to me so i would put this as my favorite season okay so those are our rankings if you have rankings (laughs) we would love to hear them and love to see them hey one of the things we didn't get to is uh what do you think is happening in season five like what 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 do you think is happening in season five so I have a big prediction, which I'm, okay. the thing I'm most curious about, I mentioned it a little earlier, is are they going to do a time jump or not? It's kind of like okay. 
baked into the show that that's always like, okay, a year later, it's kind of like Wonder Years. It's like you like grow a year of high school. Yeah. But the way that they ended the season, it's like, oh, there's a massive problem that we have to deal with like right now. Like in real time, Hawkins is being destroyed and taken over. So I'm like, are they going to let Hawkins like totally melt? Does it become a war zone? And we're it's six months later, they do like a end game sort of time jump where, oh, things just are really bad and that's what they are. Um, I'm curious yeah. about that. My biggest prediction of what's going to happen with season five is they do this thing of like they go into the upside down and they find Nancy's journal and that journal is from like the day before or right when Will disappeared somewhere right around that time. And so it's like yeah, yeah. everything in the upside down is like stuck in 1983. And I think season sure. five is going to be very much rooted in somehow time travel, time jumps. Uh, we're big fans of time travel in this show. And so I think some sort of back to the future arrival, time jumping stuff around is going to happen in season five. Mm. where they're going to deal yeah, with yeah. that in some sort of way of like, okay, we got to go back to the beginning and undo all the stuff that's been done. That is a very interesting prediction. Um, I do think with the Nancy, Jonathan, Steve love triangle, I don't want this to happen. But I think they're going to kill Steve. I think Nancy and Jonathan end up together, and I think Steve's going to die. Oh, man. It you just went the other way. Like, I was killing Jonathan, and now you're killing Steve. Yep. My boy. Yep. Mm. Yeah, I think it's not what I want to happen. It's the opposite of what you said on Volume 1. I think in Season 5, uh, Steve is going to make the ultimate sacrifice. And it's going to be heartbreaking, and everyone everywhere will cry tears for Steve. Um, I also think that Max is going to be in the hospital for most of the season, but they're going to find her consciousness in the upside down or in the like water world thing. And her character will exist fully as like a, like a mental character that has to get reconnected with her body throughout the season. And so she'll only exist in the upside down and not in the real world. That's what I think she'll, they're going to do with her. She'll be like an Obi-Wan Kenobi just like showing up in Dagobah and like saying different <laughs> things. And that's kind of like what her role will be. Yeah. Yeah, because they, they've done this thing this season where like some of the characters are in the upside down, some are in the, in the real world. And so if they do a thing where, you know, even like season one, Will is stuck there, but it's him and his physical body. I think they're going to have a situation where it's her mind is stuck in the upside down somehow. That's what I think. All right, well, Duffer Brothers, we got some good pitches for you of like what's going to happen. <laughs> and so uh, give us a call. But, but, We're writers. <laughs> yeah, but please don't listen to us because uh, you've been crushing this so far. I don't want to I don't want to get in your space. <laughs> Uh, honestly, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I know I'm here for it. And this was fun to talk about. Andrew, good job, man. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for uh, tuning in to listen, uh, even if our audio quality was slightly different due to the France of it all. Very francy. It's past midnight in France. Big time difference. But man, we're going strong. <laughs> We hope that you guys keep going strong, too. This was a lot of fun. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. It really helps other people find the podcast. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time on The Meaning of the Movie.